Welcome to Right Rising, a podcast from the Center for the Analysis of the Radical Right. I'm your host, Augusta DeLomo. Today, I'm joined by Balsa Lubarda, a doctoral candidate in the Department of Environmental Sciences and Policy at Central European University. He's here with us today to explain why ideology is important to the radical right, and particularly to far-right ecologists. Balsa, thanks for being here. Thank you for inviting me. So let's start off with defining ideology. And for our listeners, you are the head of our ideology research unit. So I'm going to put you on the spot and ask, why is ideology important in researching the contemporary radical right? And then can you give us an example of what this looks like in practice? Because this can be a very nebulous concept. Of course. Um, Ideologies are, uh, the best way to think of ideologies is uh, to think of them as clusters of political concepts. Uh, and these concepts, of course, have to be decontested or read, deciphered in a particular way. Um, for instance, uh, liberty, if we take liberty as an example, liberty is the central element of liberalism, but that liberty is not the same as in anarchism. And the same can be argued about the concept of equality in liberalism and socialism. Equality stands for, for, for entirely, two entirely different things in these ideologies. Um, the best way to think of ideologies is uh, to think of them in terms of uh, rooms. And that's, that, that's the metaphor that uh, Michael Frieden, the, the, the leading scholar of ideology studies, has used. Um, so if we think of ideologies as, uh, as rooms in a house, uh, for instance, the bedroom, uh, each room has its particular pieces of furniture, which are arranged in a, in a particular way. Uh, and if we think uh, of uh, the bedroom, for instance, the central piece of furniture, something that the bedroom cannot go without, is, of course, the bed. Uh, So the bed would be that central, the core concept within uh, the ideology of a bedroom. But of course, we have other pieces of furniture in a a bedroom. I mean, that can be the cupboard, uh, that can be a mirror, which are uh, either adjacent to the bed uh, or uh, very important for the bedroom as as a room, or uh, they can be ephemeral or peripheral. To, 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 that, uh, to that particular room. So if we are to think of ideologies in that way, uh, then we can sort of think of what are the concepts that constitute an ideology uh, as, as the, what are the building blocks of an ideology. Um, the problem with ideology is that uh, it is a notion which has long been uh, burdened by the negativity, uh, like a spectrum of negativity in a way, poured from the theorists of all kinds and scholarly backgrounds. Ideology has long been uh, considered a form of false consciousness, a distortion of reality, a hegemonical structure, or basically something which requires some form of masking, uh, unmasking or dismantling. Uh, and if we think that way, I mean, if we think in, in, in these terms, the problem with these conceptions, uh, and there are many of, of, of these readings, is that um, we end up being uh, we end up giving too much power to the ideologues or the ideologists, people who apparently have the power to subtly impose or to deceive, uh, and that's I, I see a very important problem. If, when we think of ideologies, the core term, uh, the key word that should come to our mind is flexibility. So uh, ideologies are not really something rigid. Uh, When we say ideologies are rigid, we are actually talking about the proponents of these ideologies uh, who may appear convinced or adamant in expressing their views and beliefs. Uh, In in a sense of political theory, ideologies are as pliant and as bendable as they can be. 
um, they're susceptible to change over time. And this is another very important component that we need to keep in mind. Um, I can use the old washed out uh, washed out example of uh, what conservatism or liberalism, for instance, stood uh, for. If we compare conservatism, 19th century conservatism to today's conservatism, we're not going to come to the same conclusions. Um, and not, we're not going to come to even to the same uh, pieces of furniture, uh, to speak in, in, in the conceptual in conceptual terms. So um, these are not the same things anymore. And the same actually uh, works with the radical right. Uh, ideologies can adapt and become relevant time and again. Uh, radical right is undeniably a case, a case in point. Um, what was known as the radical right in the 1920s, for instance, uh, when it more or less merged with uh, fascism or national socialism, is not the same as uh, in the 1970s with the Nouvelle Droit or uh, the national populism morphing into the radical right of today. Uh, so this is something that these are like sort of the fine lines that we need to keep in mind. Um, another thing that, that I think is worth considering is that a lot of people uh, will say today that we've passed the time of ideologies. And I actually had that with my own respondents uh, many, I mean, it happened numerous times, uh, that ideologies don't really exist anymore, that the end of history was the end of ideologies to evoke that ill-fated coinage of Francis Fukuyama. Uh, so I basically think that we need ideology more than ever. Uh, the point is to exactly identify these obscurities, these subtle gray zones, uh, because they are ultimately defining our reality. And to give an example of how messages devoid of ideological reading can, can be actually dangerous, um, I think I can, I mean, I can provide the, the, the well-known and very recent example of we are the virus of eco-fascism. Um, we have undeniably done, we, when I say we, I'm talking about the humankind, or as Justin Trudeau would say, people kind. Uh, we've undeniably done a lot of harm to the environment, but it is a slippery slope. Uh, the question, where does one stop? from this we are the virus to, let's say, um, I don't know, one-child policy or kill the uneducated or underprivileged. So this is something that we really need to think of and need to keep in mind when it comes to ideology, for sure. Thanks for setting that up for us. And I really appreciate your your metaphor of the room. It's one that we've used before um, in history or political science, but I think it's one of the best ways to explain how these different concepts can be changed in and out in that they're not always super rigid. You mentioned eco-fascism, which I think is something that many people have a sort of popular culture and mainstream idea of what eco-terrorists or eco-fascism is from television or movies. So as someone who studies this, what is eco-fascism and what are some of the problems with even this term? Yeah. So eco-fascism is, um, when I mentioned we are the Virex example, it is definitely an eco-fascist framing. But that doesn't mean that all of the people who are using it are eco-fascists. People are sometimes just not aware of the framings and the metaphors that they're using in daily life and how they can lead to very problematic understandings of the world. Um, eco-fascism is, and, and the, what's, I mean, the problem with, with that sentence and that statement is that it points to uh, the fears of overpopulation and neo-Malthusianism, uh, which is one of the fundamental, uh, the core convictions of eco-fascism. Um, so as I said, um, it, these ideas can be found elsewhere, and the people who use such messages are entirely unaware of the fact that such framing is shared by those who buy into the, say, blood and soil, the ableist vision of the world, which is something that eco-fascists 
uh, are are into. Um, now, I understand why ecofascism as a term has gained popularity in today's uh, pandemic-defined era. It is undeniably a soundbite. It is something that uh, attracts attention. And when you say ecofascism, everyone seems to know what one is talking about. Um, however, uh, ecofascism as a term, I find fairly insufficient to account for the entirety of far-right engagements with the natural environment. Um, and when I say far-right, I'm talking about, uh, it's a term from, from the scholarship, which uh, brings together the radical and the extreme right. So the, the, um, both the extra-parliamentary uh, actors who are openly willing to dismantle democratic order and those who are still playing within the, within the boundaries of the, of, of the democratic liberal democracy, liberal democratic order. Um, but what I basically wanted to say is that uh, the problem of eco-fascism is that it is narrow and synoptic and as such a, makes us focus on something which is, realistically speaking, not really a problem. Uh, if we leave Christchurch and El Paso terrorists aside, uh, people who really did not commit their abominable acts because of eco-fascist motives, even though they mentioned they made some reference to, to the environment, uh, there had been no cases of, of uh, or at least there haven't been numerous cases of eco-fascist violence. It's not something which we should be necessarily worried about. Um, what I suggested in my work is that if we want to really understand what the uh, relationship between the radical right and the environment is, we should embrace uh, sort of a conceptual, um, we, we should embrace a conceptual change uh, using the term far-right ecologism which is a kind of a, that conceptual innovation. Uh, and it, that conceptual in innovation is not developed to ameliorate the eco-fascist rhetoric, uh, but instead to serve as an attempt to identify the broader pool of right-wing ecologies the far right is leaning on. And what I mean by that is that um, to, to really understand the relationship between the radical right and the environment, we have to look at the broader uh, pool of right-wing ideologies. So we need to look at the relationship of conservatism with the environment, which is something the far right uh, has really capitalized on. Uh, for instance, the works of Roger Scruton, uh, that's a, probably one of the good examples. Uh, we have to also think about the relationship of the so-called thin-centered ideologies, such as nationalism or populism. Their relationship with the environment is also profound, and it cannot really be brought down to uh, the overpopulation argument and eco-authoritarianism of, of, of a sort. Um, so the main difference between far-right ecologism uh, is, and eco-fascism is that eco-fascism, I see eco-fascism as a sort of a subsection of far-right ecologism, uh, which integrates this conservative notion of responsibility for the environment and anthropocentrism, which uh, is another major difference. Um, eco-fascists are, generally speaking, um, Ecocentrics, um, so they do belong to these uh, sort of tributaries or proponents of deep ecology, such as Pentil, the work of Pentil and Cola. Whereas uh, most of our right ecologists are actually anthropocentric and believe in some form of Christian ecologism. Anyways, the building blocks, as I said, if we think of uh, far right ecologism as an ideology. Uh, the building blocks of far-right ecologism G, or, or ecologism are uh, Manichaeanism, uh, the rhetoric, uh, the us versus them, 
naturalism and organicism as the three main main blocks. Uh, and I identified also the peripheral concepts such as uh, autarky, spirituality and mysticism, authority, um, etc. Uh, nostalgia is also a, a very good example of, of some of the far-right ecologism. Um, but what we need to understand, and, and one thing that I would actually like to emphasize with this difference, conceptual difference between far-right ecologism and eco-fascism, is that it also makes us think about uh, the history of environmental thought. Because far-right ecologism is not merely building on the pragmatic opportunism uh, of, you know, environment being a vote-winning subject. Uh, which one needs to be engaging with in order to win power. So there is actually a profound ideological link if we look back into, 19th, into the 19th century. And uh, the very beginnings of the ecological thought have continuously mirrored various forms of far-right ecologism throughout the history. So um, we, that sort of, uh, I, I believe that far-right ecologism as a concept um, makes us put things into perspective as well, which is something that, I have a feeling that the contemporary environmental movement, as eclectic as it is, hasn't really um, had that somewhat painful uh, encounter with the history, uh, with, with, with its history thus far. I think that's absolutely fantastic how you set out these different contexts that, as you're saying, far-right ecologists operate, um, and that there are branches inside of what we think of or what you're conceptualizing as far-right ecology. So thinking about how people transition into far-right ecology, is there a standard route into this? Do people become uh, nationalist or white nationalist first, or is it a concern of the environment? How do people enter a space of far-right ecology from your research? I would say it doesn't really matter because... Uh... It comes both ways, basically. Uh, people who are proponents or supporters of far-right ecologism may view environmental protection as an integral part of nationalism. This is something that I've encountered most often. So whenever I ask, uh, whenever I talk to, to uh, representatives, respondents from the far-right, representatives of far-right organizations, they would say it comes as, as of second nature. Um, it's basically something that goes without saying that every nationalist should protect the environment. Um, at the same time, there are also some non-radical, uh, non-authoritarian uh, aspects of nationalism, which may seem appealing to those profoundly interested in the fate of the environment and, of course, us as human beings on it. Uh, so, it, as I said, it goes both ways. I would say it's most often, uh, and I actually try to talk more to the representatives of our right organizations rather than... Um, people who are not members of these organizations but hold such views. Uh, but uh, it's, it's uh, as I said, it works both ways. It's a topic that is uh, gaining traction. It's a topic that is becoming more and more salient, uh, unfortunately, because of what's going on with the environment uh, and the climate. But uh, what, I, what I think is central here is the ideal of autarky for both. Uh, this rejection of globalism as, as in free trade. Um, because globalism, and, and the, of course, I'm, I'm using the terminology of my respondents here, but uh, in their view, uh, this has done a lot of harm to uh, the people they think of as diligent and hardworking, uh, for instance, farmers, who are unfortunately an easy target to such framings. It's very easy to convince one of a farmer, someone who's really working on the land, that it is the land that is in danger 
and that uh, the environmental issues can also be an issues uh, of of the somehow related to the nation to the to uh, basically the 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 heritage, the cultural heritage, the national heritage, everything that that soil uh, to to follow the blood and soil uh, framing that the soil has. So, yep, it's it it can it can be uh, it can it's not really unidirectional. Mm. And I think that point about unid not being unidirectional transitions into my next question. Um, you've mentioned that you would consider ecofascism as one strand of far right ecologism. So. Are there different coherent strands that you've identified in your research? Yes. Yeah, so I obviously mentioned eco-fascism and, for instance, the Green Line Front. Uh, recently, uh, I wrote a piece with uh, with my colleague, uh, Benhard Fortschner, on an example of a transnational eco-fascist organization. Uh, and the reason why I, men- why I mentioned earlier in this podcast that, that I don't find eco-fascism really to be the danger is because that phenomenon was short-lived, that organization is not existing anymore. Uh, there are, of course, some group of schools and, 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 and smaller uh, sections of organizations that are eco-fascist, but they're not really a, a, a problem. Um, besides eco-fascists, we can also think about, for instance, Christian ecologists. Uh, I encountered many in Poland who are following the work of uh, St. Francis uh, de Assisi. Um, I cannot say that they are necessarily belonging to the radical right. And in fact, a number of Christian ecologists I know are very left-wing oriented, just to to be straightforward on that thing. But some of the groups uh, I are followed by by nationalist organizations in countries I spent some time working on. So, um, of course, Christian ecologists are definitely an example. We have animal welfare activists um, who... uh, a lot of animal welfare activists, for instance, in Hungary or in Serbia, are also belonging to football ultras to the uh, to that part of the the, the radical right, and they're undeniably uh, like with a, with a clear nationalist bent. Um, so they they're not really eco-fascist in, in in that literal sense that they are eco-centric, but they do care about animals and they don't like to see them hurt, and they will do something about it. And uh, you can guess that that something will usually entail uh, violence. Um, it's it's really a wide pool of actors if we're thinking about the sections of radical right parties, um, ecological sections. Some of the radical right parties already have their ecological sections, especially in Eastern Europe. So uh, what these people, it's usually the young people who, who are taking part in these and who are leading these, their uh, views and beliefs are are uh, in no way similar to that of ecofascism. Um, as I said, they're mostly informed by these conservative notion of stewardship, uh, taking care of the land uh, and and the environment as as some form of a cultural heritage. Uh, it's quite anthropocentric in a sense, and very close to to that Christian ecologism. But it just goes in in different ways, and uh, it can be oriented against migrants as well. Uh, as people who are sort of the matter out of place to evoke that well, well-known uh, Douglas's coinage. Um, so people who are not belonging there, who are not really uh, pretty much rooted in that soil uh, and who, due to these reasons, they, they, of course, do not care about that environment. And that's the type of framing that they assert. Uh, which is something that you will hear quite often from, from opponents of migration. 
regardless of whether they belong to the radical right or uh, just broader right-wing positions. So generally speaking, it is a very uh, wide pool of actors that we're talking about in far-right ecologism. I think that last point about how they're interacting with mainstream conservative ideas is critical, especially I'm considering the United States context where I live, where there is a strong strand in conservative right-wing thinking of climate change denialism. So I was hoping that you could talk a little bit about the relationship between far-right and climate change, whether it's far-right ecologists or perhaps it's something even outside of that. Yep. And so, uh, again, to, to, to use the words of Bruno Latour, this is a thing in translation, in transition. Everything, everything is on the move. Um, the arguments about the far right being climate denialist at this point to me are very much unconvincing. Um, at least from, from the context that I'm working in. Uh, I know that's not the case in the US. And uh, this is, of course, this is where the, the power of context comes into play. But uh, the radical right, for instance, in Hungary is almost unanimously acknowledging the existence of anthropogenic climate change. Like I'm talking about 99% of the organizations. Um, in the other countries of the V4, the Visegrad, for the, the region, uh, Slovakia, Czech Republic, and Poland, and elsewhere where I conducted my research, the skepticism is more um, associated with a range of responses to climate change. So we're talking about the so-called response skepticism. And what, I'm, what I mean by that is uh, the radical rights actors are against uh, banning plastic straws instead of hammering on the bigger, biggest polluters and abolishing free trade, rather than, than being evidence uh, skeptics. What you mentioned, uh, thinking that climate change is a hoax, it's something that is fabricated uh, by the elites or by the deep state or anything that may go along these lines that we unfortunately listen to too often uh, in these days, not only with regard to climate change, but unfortunately due to this virus that is that is uh, most of a, that is keeping most of us uh, at home or unable to 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 work properly, um, and I think this is obviously due to the extent to which the uh, evidence is unanimously showing the existence of the anthropogenic climate change. So, um, the far right has realized, at least in these countries that I'm working in, um, that it's impossible, that it's sort of counterintuitive. It makes no sense to uh, reject climate change, the, the existence of climate change. But I think it's also due to a recognition uh, coming from the radical right that these topics can be easily connected to that existing ideological buildup of far-right ecologism. And this is why I mentioned that we need to keep the history into context, the history of environmental thought. Um, far-right ecologists are not simply activating something for pragmatic reasons out of the blue. Of course, it is part of the reason, but there is an existing ideological link which, which uh, the far right uh, taps, taps into and uh, operationalizes it in today's uh, debates and discussions. So I think we will, what we will see more, there is a clear tendency. Uh, again, I'm being very Eurocentric here in, in talking about this and pardon me for saying so for, for, I mean, uh, making this this assumption but i think what we will see in the future is more acceptance uh on behalf of the of the radical right and far right actors in general if we're talking about eco-fascists uh eco proper eco-fascist organizations extreme right organizations uh all, again 99% of the cases they will be accepting uh the existence of climate change it is just the type of skepticism that they that they point to is is uh 
more related to the types of responses. So the polluter pays principle is not something that they really believe in. Uh, and the well, well grounded actually argument of uh, the biggest polluters in this world not paying uh, um, sufficient share and not uh, really uh, standing for the values that that uh, they sometimes nominally are representing. Uh, so talking about the biggest polluters such as China, the United States, uh, as we unfortunately can also witness uh, that there is some truth in these claims as well. Uh, and this is why I think that this uh, change, this very subtle but gradual change which is happening at the moment, is uh, something we need to keep in mind because uh, it will be very relevant for the future. It will be, um, it can lead to a situation where we will have uh, more and more uh, far right, right wing uh, nationalists, uh, radical right nationalists, who are um, possibly even becoming. Uh, I, I can actually anticipate them becoming the leaders of green parties or or uh, um, some form of, of uh, environmental uh, section of a political party or something along these lines. Uh, and this is something just to 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 be aware of. No, I think the context that you set out, you know, you, you said that you apologize for it being Eurocentric, but it is so different than the United States context in debates around climate change. So I think that distinction is incredibly important. You've done a bit of future uh, anticipating, but what kinds of futures do you think we can anticipate for these groups, particularly in the context of this pandemic? Uh, it is, yeah, the, the, the future questions are always the, the most difficult ones to address. Um, and, uh, and the ones we don't really want to do as academics. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Because, because we, we enter a field where it's, as I said, it's a slippery slope. We're lacking evidence for, we, we're, we're bringing the unsupported claims. Uh, but what I think in terms of the future is, uh, I had plenty of discussions with very intelligent respondents coming from radical nationalist, extreme nationalist circles. Um, what I'm trying to, and what I try to emphasize in my lectures or public talks or whatever I say for the public, speak for the public, is that you really, and when I say you, each of us, should think twice about who uh, your favorite farmer, but also your physician, your travel guide, or university professor in biology is in terms of ideology. Uh, I profoundly believe there is a merit in discussing some of these subjects in person, uh, as online discussions are really bound to get hostile at some point. Um, it may sound a bit too compassionate, but believing in these face-to-face -face interactions with people who we profoundly disagree with it can be, can be uh, not necessarily a solution to the problem, but it can help us understand what kinds of framings we need to think about. If we're think, talking about the future, um, what I can definitely anticipate is uh, far-right ecologists or eco-fascists permeating the mainstream, uh, which has already happened in many places, particularly if we think of local environmental justice movements or local environmental activism. So I'm talking about the, that local grassroots scale. Um, what we're also doing is um, if, we, if we, we're we running the risk of labeling anything that is even remotely radical with regard to our ecologically harmful way of life, uh, our conceptions of an ecologically harmful way of life, uh, we run the risk of labeling it fascist. Um, and that's not always helpful. Uh, it is good sometimes to point, uh, it, it's always good to point da to dangerous framings, but uh, I think that we may, may lead to, it may lead us to a situation where the radical change, which is 
undeniably necessary um, coming from uh, the non-nationalist uh, side can be can be seen as, as eco-fascist. What I'm trying to say is I do not wish... Uh, so I don't think that we should be uh, safeguarding the discursive golden middle uh, because it will ultimately boil down to business as usual rhetoric. And this is something we're already seeing that this, that, it, that logic is not succeeding. Um, what we need to learn from far-right ecologism for the future is that the moral panic to which we tend to react and the obsession with exposing and unmasking something or someone uh, is not actually conducive to achieving a social change. Uh, and what, I've, what I see, and as I mentioned that in the future, is that certain contexts, uh, in certain contexts, such as those that I've been conducting research in uh, Hungary, Poland, where you have 60% of the population voting for right-wing populists or uh, other far-right parties, there's no way on earth that you can possibly ignore these actors. Um, so there's no way that you can just point your finger and say, I'm not talking to these people uh, or the people who vote them. Uh, you can, of course, not talk to the proponents, but uh, the voters, you have to. So the debate is not only pertaining to the environmental domain, I believe, uh, it is that question of uh, deliberative democracy it points to these broader issues that we're having, uh, because I feel that we're ending up in a situation where who speaks the louder is uh, the winner of the conversation. And somehow I do not like that scenario. So uh, it is, it, I find it, in, uh, I think it's a general remark, which is uh, in my deepest convictions, a valid one. No, I, and I think that's a great point to end on of how we ignore these actors at our peril. And if we don't understand the origins and the issues that these far-right groups are really rallying around, we're not able to engage and have a democracy, as you said. So, Belsa, thanks for being here. And for people that want to find you or research and learn more about you, are you on social media? Where can they connect with you? Yes, uh, they can find me on Twitter. Um that's where I'm somewhat active, not as much, uh, but uh, it's easy to reach me. Uh, otherwise, um, just look up on the car website and find my uh, profile and there's my email and you can reach out to me without any problems. I will be happy to respond and engage to the best of my ability. Thank you for being here and joining us today. Thank you very much. Thanks for joining us for Right Rising, a podcast from the Center for the Analysis of the Radical Right. See you next time.